welcome everyone to the spring 2019 show and tell. I'm so excited to see you all talking to each other and learning from each other. It's exactly what is at the heart of TechSquare ATL. Now, why does TechSquare ATL exist, you ask? Our ascendance as a species is dependent upon solving increasingly complex challenges. And those breakthroughs do not happen in a vacuum. They happen naturally by bringing together subject matter experts from different fields to learn from each other, inspire each other, and collaborate together. So we here at TechSquare ATL exist to create those connections that fuel commerce in TechSquare. Um, how many of you work in TechSquare? Can I see a quick show of hands? Awesome. Great. Uh, so those of you who are new to TechSquare, welcome. This is actually the largest concentration of students, startups, corporate innovation centers, and research labs in the southeast. So you're amongst some very, very smart people. So I truly hope that you leave here today with new connections and new ideas. Uh, but before I let you get back to exploring all the amazing exhibits, have you all enjoyed the exhibits? Learned some things? Yeah. yeah, give a hand, a round of applause for the exhibitors. They really are amazing. Um, I'm going to introduce you to four amazing people. I'm going to have them come up one by one. I'm going to bring up Zam Sam Zamparia. Yeah, come up. So he is the CEO and director of Intent Solutions, an experienced leader in the banking and private equity investment. Sam is also well known for his commitment to public service. He represented the city of Atlanta from 2002 to 2006 in the Georgia State Senate, where he was secretary of the State Economic Development Committee and a member of the committees on insurance, science and technology, and transportation. He is a trustee of the Annie Casey Foundation and a lifetime trustee of Syracuse University. So can I get a round of applause real quick? Okay. Um, Thank you. I have five precious moments, minutes, um, to talk about changing the world. Um, I was thinking about it last night, about what we all do, and all of us, in some way, shape, or form, are out to, to, to make a difference and to matter and to flip the switch on something. And um, in our case, we're, we're after solving one of the, the oldest problems in the world, which is people don't take medicines as they're supposed to. Some people take too many and some people don't take any. If you take too many, you can become addicted. If you don't take the right medicines, well, you can die. And that's an intractable problem. It's called adherence in the, ca in the category, but really it's just about human behavior. So in a sense, uh, our, our little company, Intent Solutions, which makes a portable dispenser of prescription medications called TAD, and TAD is an acronym for Take As Directed. Um, good. And you can put your finger on it and it'll dispense a pill for you. Um, to, to you, you informed people, you will recognize that this is basically a data device because this device is capable of collecting information on how people behave, you know, how they take their medicines or if they don't take their medicines. So if we ask the question, where, what are we doing that in five years is going to matter, this device is really not what's going to matter. What's, what's going to matter is we might, that clinicians, doctors, researchers, pharmacists might have a little better idea of what people really do around medications. 
Uh, just think of yourself for a moment with your relationship to medications, where you stuff them, when you take them, when you don't. You know, the last, the last uh, antihistamine or the last uh, antibiotic that you were given, where is it right now? Did you take the full regimen? Probably not. It's okay. You felt well, right? Well, you're not alone. And so that whole category is the category we're after. And, and I would leave you with this notion. Do I have two minutes or a minute and a half? Yes, one minute. One minute. I would leave you with this notion, if I could answer my phone first. I would leave you with this idea that most of us are really not going to change the world. We're going to change the way people understand the world. And that is the basis for then change. And I'll leave you with this example. Um, when the streaming music business started, there was this big discussion about the end of music because it was moving from self-play vinyl, self-play tapes, self-play to streamed uh, programmed play and options to play anytime you want. Well, well, over the course of the decades since the big digital streaming companies have come around, what they've learned is that people are listening to more music. So the technology not only changed the way people consumed it and enjoyed it, but it changed the volume of it. It changed their behavior. And that's the phenomena of technology. And that's the phenomena that we're after in our company is how do we provide something that people learn something about how people behave that in turn changes the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next up is Hedea Nicole Green. Yeah, come on up. So she is the founder of Oralee Smith Cancer Research Foundation. She's also one of the first African-American Amer African women to earn a PhD in physics and has developed a cancer treatment that used lasers and nanotechnology to kill cancer. <laughs> um, in mice in just 15 days after a single 10-minute treatment with no observable side effects. She founded a 501c3 nonprofit organization, the Ora Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation, to raise the funding for human clinical trials so this treatment can be made affordable for everyone. Dr. Green has entwined her life's purpose into the mission of the organization, to change the way cancer is treated and reduce the suffering of cancer patients by providing a treatment that is accessible, affordable, and effective. Please welcome to the stage, Dr. Green. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's just that one. Okay. How many people in this room have been impacted by cancer? Who has lost a loved one, has ever witnessed the suffering, has ever seen the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation, has ever grieved the loss of a loved one to cancer? So before I begin to project how I plan to change the world over the next five years, I'd like to tell you guys a story. Right after I finished with my first degree in physics, my aunt who raised me from age four announced that she had what she referred to as woman's cancer. She said that she would rather die than experience the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. I was her primary caregiver the last three months of her life, and I saw firsthand how ca cancer ravaged her body. Three months after she passed, my uncle who raised me 
was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He decided to opt in for treatments, and I saw firsthand how devastating the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation was. It had deteriorated his body so much that if I had seen him walk down the street, I would not have recognized him. He lost over 100 pounds, all of his hair, all of his eyebrows, all of his eyelashes. His fingernails turned black. His toenails turned black. His skin looked like it had been barbecued and fried. It was horrific. These were the people who raised me. And being the first in my family to go to college after interning at NASA and seeing satellites in outer space that can tell whether a dime on the ground is face up or face down, or having cell phones bounce off a satellite in outer space and pinpoint any one cell phone anywhere in the planet, I couldn't understand why we couldn't use that kind of precision when we were treating cancer. And why did we have to continue to subject our loved ones, and sometimes even ourselves, to the horrible side effects of chemotherapy and radiation? Why can't we use that kind of precision when we treat cancer? So I went on a journey to pursue a PhD in physics based on developing a technology using my background in lasers and optics to change the way cancer is treated. And I actually developed a technology using lasers and nanoparticles that can specifically treat cancer at the site of the tumor. And as you heard in the introduction, after one single treatment, it completely eliminates tumors in mice over the course of 15 days with no observable side effects. So as the first in my family to go to college, I had to make a decision about how to move forward to commercialize this technology and decided to implement a new business model, which is inspired by the Susan G. Komens and the American Cancer Societies of the World, which raise over a billion dollars a year for the hope of a cure. These cancer donations could actually save lives. So I decided to put our hat in the game, and I started a nonprofit, a 501c3 that I named after my late aunt, the Aura Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation. Our prediction of the future is that the Aura Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation will become the new cancer nonprofit, the new cancer household name for a nonprofit, and not only just raising money to raise awareness, but we want to use the funds that we raise to start and pay for human clinical trials. So my vision for five years is not just that we'll be the new nonprofit on the block, but that people will choose us as their cancer nonprofit of choice so their donations can pay for clinical trials to keep this treatment affordable and accessible for all who need all around the world. It's a new day, it's a new age, and the Aura Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation is ushering in this new day and new age. And I want to empower each of you who hear this, who's listening to this, to be part of this revolution, to change the way cancer is treated, and to help us reduce the suffering of cancer patients by providing a cancer treatment that's not only demonstrated that it's effective already in mice, that we're moving into humans, but also to keep it affordable and accessible for those in need. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next we have Hans Termel. Uh, he's advanced engineering. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Advanced Engineering Group Manager for Vision and Sensing Automotive Applications at Panasonic Automotive. Um, Hans is a Georgia Tech alumni and inventor within the automotive automotive industry for more than 20 years. He has spent most of his career with the advanced engineering organizations for Delphi and Panasonic, creating innovative engineering solutions and managing engineering teams to push the needle within automotive technology. He has multiple patents and many published technical papers. Please, welcome to the stage. So first off, please, another round of applause over there. Um, I, I'm following. Uh, that, that's amazing, okay? That really inspires me. And so, okay, thank you. So um, with that, um, I'm going to be, you're, you're probably wondering, okay, so this is not the health industry, right? This is the automotive industry, a utilitarian kind of device that we use every single day. But the connection I'm going to try to pull to you is that we're using here at Georgia Tech, and I'm running the Georgia Tech Innovation Center after uh, John Avery has now taken a, uh, a promotion in running the ATDC uh, area, um, to uh, try to, try to um, inspire your health and wellness within the vehicle and your driving experience. Um, we're doing many things here from a machine learning aspect. A lot of them are, are uh, optical-based right now. Um, moving into other areas of radar and, and, and sensing, because uh, our group is all about uh, surrounding awareness inside and outside of the vehicle. So if I'm looking at inside of the vehicle today, um, you're looking at the major portion of what, what we're trying to fight against is our own distractions. As we're trying to drive a vehicle in a safe manner, trying to understand, uh, make sure that, uh, and our feeling and fighting our feeling of connectivity constantly. Right? So in the automotive space, we try to ease that and make that a little bit more comfortable. But we also have found that we need to be able, as we're moving over into level three autonomy, where we're going to be transitioning between driving the vehicle and having it drive, that we have to understand the cognitive state of the individual as they're driving down the road. And a lot of you probably follow a lot of autonomous uh, conversations um, that are going on and the the major conversation is like what does this transitional period look like um, I pulled this data from a, a lidar presentation that I just recently got and I I was inspired by it because level 3 just extended out to 2050 and in their perspective and I I think that there's a lot of controversy in how this how fast this transition would wind up happening but what I want you to see is that this is a cultural shift right most things in the automotive industry take at least a decade because there's an adoption rate associated to it now that can be disrupted by what we're seeing in the shared economy right now where you're seeing uber and lyft being a part of that shared aspect. And, and honestly, out of this data, the one thing that I do uh, disagree with is what we call robotic cars, right? Um, I think that that adoption rate will be um, a lot faster because it will be uh, corporately motivated in those areas. But the, the challenges are still the same. So uh, in understanding when you go into the vehicle, are you the person who ordered that lift, right? And are you, how is your stress level associated with being inside of that vehicle? So I just wanted to give you some awareness of what we're doing here at Georgia Tech. Um, and currently what we've been doing, you're more than welcome, this is one example of things that we're doing. We're doing cabin monitoring, we're doing a whole lot of other 
surrounding awareness aspects within the vehicle. I have a driver monitoring example over at our, our table that I welcome you to come over and smile at and see it detecting your emotional state that you're smiling. Um, I welcome you to actually look angry and uh, see how that works. And that really understands the cognitive state if you're ready to take over the responsibility of driving. Um, but currently these are the areas that we've been looking at. And one thing I like to always highlight is not only just the facial aspects and the gaze and drowsiness is what we normally do in emotion, which is our example, but also we're looking at identification of those individuals. And so once we know who you are, right, by, by your by facial recognition, just like your iPhone right now, you can unlock your iPhone with your face now. Um, you can, um, when you order that Uber and Lyft, uh, and there's no driver in there to identify and make sure that that person is, who, you know, that you ordered it, um, that will be part of the security aspects that we'll be adding. In addition to that, we will also be uh, doing that for a comfort and personalization aspects so that all those things, your radio stations, your seat position and everything, is all, um, all for your comfort in driving as we are entering into this level three autonomous aspect. So ending on that, watching, we're watching for your health and wellness through the safety of the driving experience. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, last, but of course not least, ah, yes, whoop. Um, we have T. Faircloth, founder of Coordinated Care. T. loves solving big challenges. His latest target, rural health care. Uh, T has spent the last 20 years rebooting insolvent companies in distressed industries. His company, Coordinated Care, is revitalizing rural health care to make a difference in the 70 million Americans who depend on rural hospitals. Today, through the company's mission, T is a thought leader on rural health activity rural health and actively working with legislators, state governments, academic institutions, and national rural advocates to to drive innovations that can benefit the patient care and hospitals alike. So welcome to the stage, T. Faircloth. Thanks, Amelia. Um, yeah. no, this is not going to work, yeah. So hi, uh, we're in the midst of a national rural health crisis um, just this decade. Just this decade, although it actually works better when you hold it close to your mouth, amazing. Um, why, there it goes. So just this decade, we've had 97 rural hospitals close. Um, this has never happened in history. And it's only getting worse, and it's only accelerating. Um, just a week ago, um, Kansas, which was considered the crown jewel of rural health care, um, they saw its third hospital close this quarter. So it's, uh, the crisis is real, and it's, it's getting more acute. Um, Georgia, we're, we're considered ground zero for the rural health crisis. So we got that going for us. Um, and about three years ago, we started working with the Medical College of Georgia's uh, rural health office and really did a deep dive into where can rural hospitals exist in this healthcare world of today. And what we came, what we sort of, when we broke it down was rural areas are really good at caring about people. They may not have the latest and greatest technology, but the blocking and tackling of caring for people is something that they do really well. So we found a federal program called the Swing Bed Program, which allows for subacute care. And we started working with larger urban hospitals who are having capacity issues of their own 
And if you ever spent time in an emergency room or had to like schedule non-emergent surgery, the waiting times are real, the capacity issues are real. Just look on Peachtree and see what uh, Piedmont's building, building there now. So they're having major capacity issues while these rural hospitals, they have on average less than four patients a day in their hospital and their census. So when you do the math and you have 150 employees and four customers, that's not really gonna add up no matter what business you're in. So we're working to get patients from rural areas back home for their subacute care, for their rehabilitation in these rural hospitals. It ends up benefiting all four parties. For the urban hospitals, they stop losing money because they get paid in a lump sum. So on day four, they're losing about $2,000 a day on these patients who were there. So they stop losing money. The rural hospital gets enough revenue to stay open, and this is good revenue for them just because healthcare is complicated, but it's really good revenue for them. And for the patient, their time in the hospital is much shorter, and their rate of readmission is one-third the rate as if they go to a local nursing home where they're not near their friends and family. But for the healthcare system, where it really saves money, is you're taking a patient from a bed that costs about $2,000 a day, and they're getting better outcomes from a bed that costs $600 a day. So you're able to stop that cycle of readmission, which causes so much of our huge health costs, and you're able to provide the right level of care to the right time for the right patient. Two minutes? Oh, good, I can, minute and a half, all right. So, so it benefits basically all four parties, and we've seen this in Georgia. There have been a couple of hospitals we've been working with. Uh, Clinch County, which is in Homerville, Georgia, which no one here has probably been to. It's right next to Okefenokee Park. It's the, uh, Clinch County is the size of, of Metro Atlanta, and there are 5,000 people there. It's uh, not highly populated. It is the blueberry capital of America. So it's got that going for it, but it has a hospital as well. And when we started working with Clinch, met with the CEO, and she had two patients that day. But in nine months, through her focus on rehab, she's gone from two patients a day up to 12, which isn't great, but they only have 25 beds to fill. So we're halfway there in only nine months. And she's still willing to push that rock up the hill every morning and have it roll back down or push it up the next day. And she's going to get to where that hospital is profitable, which is great, especially in a county that size. Because in these small towns, if you lose your hospital, your town is dead economically. Uh, Glenwood, near Jacksonville, the, ho the hospital closed. Six months later, the local bank closed. And within a year, the only grocery store in cl town closed. So as a small rural community, if you lose your hospital, your town is gone. So it's, it's a real problem. And, you know, for people in Atlanta, why it matters is if Atlanta's the only economic engine driving the entire state, that's a huge burden on Atlanta. So we need the rest of the state to, you know, there's a whole Two Georgias initiative to get the rest of the state economically producing at the same level Atlanta is. And so for these small towns, having them keep their rural hospital is a matter of life or death.
Yes, well, it's a tax credit. It's, it's dollar for dollar. Um, until the new tax took into effect, it was actually, we figured out how you could get a 20% return on it. That's gone away under the new tax code. But it's, you know, dollar for dollar donation, $10,000. If you have a C Corp, you can donate any amount. Um, but yeah, no, that's up to 60 million. We're working with the Lieutenant Governor's Office to get that up to 100 million, which is great. But the key is with that stuff is let's use that to change business operations, not to fund the same thing that caused you to lose that money in the first place. So we're working with the rural hospitals to actually use that money to improve their business models, to improve their operations, and not just throw up another coat of paint that doesn't generate any more revenue. So, yes. All righty. Oh, I had a couple other slides. Okay, one more round of uh, applause for the four speakers, please. Yeah. Did everyone learn something? Good. Okay. So before I close out and we get back to looking at the uh, exhib exhibits, I want to give a big round of applause to the Good Food Truck. They have brought us locally sourced, amazingly tasty. Y'all enjoy that? That's good. Amazingly tasting and locally sourced because you can't really be healthy without healthy food in your body. So thank you so much for your time and your attention. If you work in Synergy or TSRB, this could, uh, this could be your collaborative workspace anytime you want to get out of the office. So if you want to learn more about how to become a TechSquare ATL member and not only get looped in on all the amazing events, but use the garage, please come talk to me after. Okay, uh, exhibitors, please go back to your booths. Everyone else, have some fun.